0: How beautiful is that song? Um, well, hey, let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning before we open up God's Word. And, and as, as I pray, I'm just going to read Habakkuk chapter 3. If you've been here a while, you know this is one of my favorite scriptures. But verse 17 says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Pretty much what that saying is, is, although everything in my life is going bad, it says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Let's pray this morning. Father, I just pray for all of those who have come into this room today saying that that's probably true of them. Maybe there's a season, a moment, um, a morning, uh, even the drive in that it just feels like things are trending downwards. God, what this scripture tells us is that our ability to praise and to worship and to put our eyes on you is not dependent upon our circumstances, but upon your greatness. And Lord, thank you for the opportunity we had just to be reminded of that, to sing about your greatness, to sing that you're also Emmanuel, not only transcendent and great and our Creator, but you're also Emmanuel, God willing to come and be among us and take on flesh and to sympathize with us in every one of our weaknesses, with every one of our struggles. I pray for this people this morning, for this church this morning, myself included, God, that you would be a great high priest to us, that we would choose, regardless of what circumstances we're faced in, that we would choose to put our eyes on you and to worship you, that yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Give us that level of spiritual fortitude this morning, and I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Hey, um, I I didn't ask for their permission this morning uh, to do this, so if they hear this on the recording, they may be frustrated with me, but uh, many of you may know um, Jeff and Penny Gregory. Um, I see Rachel here, so um, if you don't know them, this may not pertain to you, but Jeff has been battling a pretty long-term sickness and um, was able to get uh, a liver transplant taking place yesterday, Rachel, I'm looking. Yeah, yesterday. It's all kind of blended together. So incredible procedure done in Atlanta. So I just want to just kind of call our church body to pray for Jeff and Penny and, and for their family. As he heals, as his body begins to adjust to such a, a donor procedure and, um, and for God's provision. Um, they've, they've been on the list for a while. So the Lord has really been gracious to them. So we're going to keep praying for Jeff and Penny as Jeff recovers from that surgery. Um, but if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter six, okay? So two months prior to the date of our text today, so two months prior to the date of Nehemiah chapter six, Nehemiah took the first steps towards what God had put into his heart to do. He took the first steps into rousing an apathetic, defeated group of people to rebuild the walls of an ancient city, the ancient city of Jerusalem. I can't imagine the level of enthusiasm Excitement, maybe even adrenaline, that the people of God experienced when they began that work, right? Try to put yourself in their position for a minute. I mean, a hundred years this wall has sat decimated. Yet, in one moment, there's this this unity around this singular project to begin the work of rebuilding. And I just can't imagine how excited they were to start that process. I'm sure there were uncertainties, sure there were fears, maybe even some doubts of whether they could actually get it done or not. But more than anything, I just bet they were in, they were excited with the anticipation. Have you ever felt that? Like maybe, maybe joining God in a new work, uh, have you ever felt that level of excitement, that adrenaline can kind of get you going? You know, some of the works of God can be miraculous and, and magnificent and just huge, you know, and some are more seemingly insignificant. But I think regardless of what it is we begin to join God with, there's always this level of, the, level of excitement, right? Like, I think about when, when Annie walked down the aisles, men, if you can remember, you know, however long ago, just the doors opening and just, you know, you weren't thinking about the work that that was going to take. You're not thinking about any, all you're thinking about is just the excitement of those first few steps, right, of joining God in that work of building whatever your life is going to look like. You know, we have four kids. I think about the day each one of our four kids were born, right, for all you new parents in the room or those with, you know, about to have your first, you know, you're, you have no idea, you have no idea you know, the exhaustion and and just the toil and the labor that awaits you. But you don't care. You know, in that moment, it's just the excitement, just the bliss of joining God in some kind of new work that he's doing. I think about when we we planted this church, you know, August 7th, 2022. I mean, the the night before I, I slept, zero, you know. Some of that was nerves, you know, but I think more than anything, it's just excitement. It was just everything we've been planning for, everything we've been praying for finally coming to fruition. There's just this, this excitement about taking the first steps into a new walk with God. But as familiar as those feelings of new beginnings can be, haven't we all experienced them puttering out before? They, they don't carry you forever, don't they? They, they can start to lose steam. I mean, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you ever done a New Year's resolution? February 1st, you know, it's usually when I give it. It just starts to putter out. Like the excitement that you had to start something new begins to lose its facade. It just begins to get a little bit more boring. And church, that's what we're gonna kind of find in our text today. I don't know what God may have stirred in you since we've, we've started this series of Rebuild, but, but I'm curious as to how it's going. Right, whether it's in your family, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's in your finances, professionally, like whatever it is. Like I'm curious if 13 weeks, we're 13 weeks into the series of Ezra and Nehemiah, I'm curious, are are you starting to lose some of that adrenaline? Are you beginning to putter out maybe what God's called you to do? George McDonald wrote this incredible book called A Resilient Life, where he kind of documents this experience of, of excitement and kind of what it's gonna take to actually accomplish a great work. He documents the building of the Transcontinental Railroad, okay? And in this, this book of Resilient Life, he talks about this one financial backer of this project named Collis Huntington. And all these dignitaries had this massive ceremony to kind of kickstart the project of the Transcontinental Railroad. Okay? They're going to lay the first spike, you know, the golden spike together, and they're going to get this project started. Well, Huntington declined the offer to be a part of this ceremony. And this is what he said in his, his declined offer. He says, if you want to celebrate overdriving the first spike, you go ahead. I don't. Anybody can drive a first spike, but there are months of labor and unrest between the first and the last. I'll join you in Sacramento, and that would be where the project was to be completed. Isn't that true? Right? There's so much energy over that first spike, but what Collis Huntington had the wisdom to know is that between the first and last, y'all, there's going to be so much pain, so much toil, so much things that need to be endured. In a word, y'all, what that's going to require is, is perseverance. It's perseverance. It's perseverance. And that's what our text is going to be about today. The work that God may be stirring you to do, and however it began, y'all, it is going to require perseverance. So usually what I do is I read our text in its entirety, right, and then kind of unpack it. What we're going to do today is we're going to stop and start. So you're going to be looking down a lot. You're going to look it up a lot. So we're going to start in verse 1, and then we'll start to unpack, okay? So we're thinking about perseverance today. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1. It says, now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates. All right, look back up. Here we go. Here's where we're at in verse 1. The work is almost over. I mean, this is an incredible work of perseverance up until this point. They've had to overcome so many obstacles to get the wall to the point where there's no more breaches left. Right? All that's remaining is the finishing touches. They just got to put the doors of the gates into place, and then the work can be completed. Y'all, they're almost over. But when the enemies of Nehemiah, who we've seen throughout our text, is Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, when they heard that all of their attempts up to this point have fallen flat, they know we've got one last shot. It's, it's now or never. Either they, they stop the work of God now before the gates get put into place, or It's over. And they're going to employ, y'all, three just incredible tactics to try to get Nehemiah to put down his work. But what we're going to see more than anything is his perseverance. Okay, so here's three principles for perseverance. How is Nehemiah going to continue to resist this opposition? Three principles for perseverance. The first one is this. Say no to oh no. And for all of you looking at me confused, you did a great job. You didn't read ahead. Okay, so let's look at verse 2. We have to say no to oh no. Verse 2. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakaphirim in the plain of Ono. Alright, so from the outside looking in, Sanbalat seems to be conceding. Right? That's the that's the image. That's the picture he's giving there by is like, hey, white flag, let's call a little bit of a truce. And we have to remember Sanbalat is from Samaria, Tobiah from Ammon, the Ammonites, and then Geshem is the Arabs. So the people of Israel are surrounded by these figures. So Sanbalat goes, hey, we're gonna have to live together. For the next you know, 500 years, we, we probably need to come together. Why don't you come out to Ono and let's have an international peace treaty? Let's, let's discuss some terms. Let's learn what it looks like to live amicably with one another. But y'all, Nehemiah shockingly says no to Ono. You see, for Nehemiah, Ono was about seven miles uh, south of the city of Joppa. I'm gonna put it on the screen for you. So he was in Jerusalem. Nehemiah's in Jerusalem. He's having to go, what is that, northwest to the plain of Ono. This would have been about a two-day journey for Nehemiah. Maybe we assume that it takes about a day to entertain one another, you know, to discuss the terms, and then a two-day return journey. So you're looking at minimum of a five-day journey for Nehemiah. Yet Nehemiah says no to traveling to Ono. Look at verse 3 with me. It says, and I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work. And I cannot come down. And what he means is I cannot come down. He's actually going north, but Jerusalem sits high up on a mountain. So what he means come down. I cannot leave Jerusalem to come down to you. Keep reading. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? I mean, y'all, put yourself in Nehemiah's shoes for just a second. What would conventional wisdom encourage you to do if you were Nehemiah? I mean, conventional wisdom would say, y'all, we, we've got to live with these enemies, what is five days in the work of putting gates in the doors if we can get 50 years of peace with these neighbors? The diplomatic solution here would be to say yes to oh no yet once again Nehemiah says no to oh no and he says I can't come to you I'm doing a great work. Now let me defend Nehemiah for a second. He's not being arrogant okay. Nehemiah is saying, I'm so self-important and my task is so much greater than you. I'm too busy. You know how you guys use busy, you know, to talk about how important we are. We always use that. I'm so busy. That's not what's happening here. Nehemiah is not saying I'm too important to come down to meet with you. Okay. This isn't a boastful or an arrogant comment. In fact, what we know of Nehemiah is that he actually left a great work to be a part of this menial work of building the city. Who was Nehemiah before he built the walls of Jerusalem? You remember? Cupbearer. Cup He was the right-hand man to the king of Persia, who was the most powerful person of this time period. Right-hand man to the king of Persia. He actually left that great work in the eyes of the world to come and join God in this menial task of building an insignificant city. You see, Nehemiah wasn't saying, hey, I'm doing this great work because the task in and of itself is great. Nehemiah understood that the greatness of his task was just directly correlated to the greatness of the God who had called him to that task. What Nehemiah knew is I can't put down my trowel. I can't come meet with you because the God who is so great has called me to a work, and I must be obedient to what he has called me to. Nehemiah knew it was God who had stirred him, Nehemiah chapter 1. It was God who had put it into his heart to rebuild, Nehemiah chapter 2. It was God's good hand that had been upon him, 2, 3, and 4. He knew it was God who had called me to this task. So for me to come to the plane of oh no means that I can no longer be occupied with the greatness of the task my God has called me to. Five days round trip to meet with Ballot would take five days away from the work that God had called him to. But look at verse four. They were persistent. It says, and they sent to me four times in this way. How many of you are willing to say no to somebody once? And then as soon as that second ask goes, you just immediately cave, right? You know, this takes perseverance, like to be able to be persistent enough to say no four times. It says, I answered them in the same manner. Here's the question. How could Nehemiah persevere there? How can he say no to oh no four separate times? It's because he knew his priorities, right? Roy Disney, the the brother of Walt Disney, once said that decisions are easy when your priorities are clear. Isn't that true? Like when you can prioritize and execute, thats a phrase you use all the time. When you can have clear priorities, it tends to make decisions a little bit easier. And Nehemiah knew this, that he had prioritized the work of his God which means that it's a little bit easier for me to say no to distractions, no to things like, oh, no, that will actually take me away from the priority. Here's where it gets personal for us, y'all. Oftentimes, the work of rebuilding that God has stirred in each of your life, often that gets paused or it begins to putter out because you start saying yes to things that end up making you say no to the thing God's called you to. That makes sense? Right? We say yes to even good things that become distractions for us from the thing that God has actually called you to. Let me give you three just small examples that I know you're, you're bound to, to be familiar with. Okay? Oftentimes, we want to prioritize the growth of God in our lives by prioritizing Sunday church. Right? At the minimum, we want to be at church on Sunday. But we end up saying yes right, to so many things that keep us here every Sunday. Right? Some of us want to prioritize growth in God by, by prioritizing family dinners. You want to have your kids around a table. You want to debrief the day together, maybe an opportunity for discipleship there. But we end up saying yes to so many things that keep us constantly in transition throughout the evenings where we're eating through drive-thrus, we're passing each other in the night, and we end up saying no to that work that God may be stirring. We want to say yes to God. We actually want to start waking up earlier to spend the first portions of our morning with God. Come on, I know I'm hitting home now, okay? And then we end up saying yes to an Instagram reel at 1030. The night before and then you say yes to another and then to another you know you know why you keep saying yes to these things they're designed to keep you to say yes and yes and yes and you say yes and yes and yes and now you're tired so how do you compensate you hit snooze and you sleep on through because you've said yes to something even if it's not inherently bad although i could make the case that instagram's horrible okay you say yes to things and we end up saying no to the thing that god has actually stirred us to church this happens all the time you got to say no to oh no there's some distractions out there. There's some things that want to pull you away from what God wants for you. And you've got to let your priorities drive your decisions. All right. But Ono oh, wasn't the only tactic. Look with me at verse 5 of Nehemiah chapter 6. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations. And Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets and proclaimed concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear these reports. So now, come, let us take counsel together. All right, so after saying no to Ono, the mask of Sanballat and his posse and their fangs start to come out, right? Mask is off, fangs are out, and they succumb to such a low blow. You know what, you know what this tactic is? It's called a smear campaign. You know what a smear campaign is? You may not know that term, but you're going to see it play out a lot over the next 12 months, right? This is politics. It's a smear campaign. For some of you, you may remember a man by the name of Ralph Nader. Anybody know Ralph Nader? I had to Google him. Okay, sorry. He was the 1960s. So Ralph Nader was a scientist who began to complain about vehicle safety, began to raise all these alarms and bells about vehicle safety, and it began to negatively impact the revenue of General Motors. How did GM respond to that? They hired a private investigator to tap his phone and to search his trash and to actually hire prostitutes to allure him, lure him into a promiscuous situation. That's a smear campaign. Doing anything and everything to discredit and disrepute someone so that the task would be stopped, so that the work wouldn't happen. Here's three elements of a smear campaign, okay? The first is the exaggeration. We see this in our text. Look back at our text. Sam Ballot, for the fifth time, sends this open letter and says, hey, it's reported among the nations, who's talking about this he's like the nations don't worry about who it's everybody everybody's talking about this there is such a coalition there's so many people that are talking about this Nehemiah this is a big deal this has gotten out everybody is talking about it he's like you don't believe me but you can believe Geshem right he's like believe Geshem he's trustworthy not to mention Geshem has been Nehemiah's enemy since the beginning right and he's like you can definitely believe Geshem Geshem says it's true it's this massive exaggeration, y'all. That's the first element of a smear campaign. This exaggeration that everybody is talking about it. Secondly, the element is the gossip. All right, this is all gossip. First, it's an open letter. So ancient times, picture a letter. Someone writes it, seals it. That has to remain unsealed until it reaches its private destination, right? Its final destination. This, this letter was never sealed. It was open which means from Samaria all the way down to Jerusalem, whoever passed that hand, that, that letter, all through those hands, they were just reading it publicly, maybe in the market, all throughout those cities, this letter's getting passed. Y'all, that's the intent here. The intent was to share it with anybody and everybody to let that gossip spread as far and as fast as possible. Then you have the third element, which is just misinformation. Hey, here's what everybody's saying, Nehemiah. You just want to be king. That's what it is. You just want to be king. Then you want to rebel against the king of Persia. It all lies. If you were here last week, we saw in Nehemiah chapter 5 that he had actually forfeited all that his role, all that his position of authority had to offer. He didn't want anything to do with that. He didn't want the rule. He didn't want the pomp. He didn't want the ego. Nehemiah wasn't about that. He just wanted to obey what God had called him to. But yet they there saying, everybody's saying it, man. Everybody knows it now. You just want to be king, so you better come sit down with us if you don't want Artaxerxes to hear this. Church, it doesn't matter, these smears, it doesn't matter if it's true or not. That's not the point of a smear, right? The point of a smear is not matter if it's true or not, it just has to have an appearance of truth, has to have people interpret it wrongly, and all of a sudden you're discredited, or you're distracted. And this is why smears are so effective, right? If Nehemiah were to spend all of his time tracking down all the people who heard that smear, Right, all those cities that that letter was read in, all the hands that had been passed. If he had spent his time worried about what everybody was saying about him, he's done. He's already lost. The smear campaign has had its effect. You know why he's lost? Because he's not working anymore. He's distracted. He's spending his time defending the smear. But if he doesn't defend the smear, what what's Artaxerxes going to do with Persia? Like, if this actually gets to the Persian Empire, y'all, the work could be over overnight. With one siege of the Persian army, all of this work that Nehemiah has been given to could be over. These are why these smears, y'all, are so effective. Because what do you do? How are you supposed to combat this? Y'all, I don't know if this may be true for you, but but I can say if you want to start prioritizing the work of God in your life, you may start to experience some smears. It, it, It might happen. It might happen from those closest to you you may know, I want to grow in God, which means at least in this season, I've got to distance myself from those who don't want me to grow in God, who have no interest in growing in God. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, I need to still be friends with them so then I can win them to Jesus. That's true when you're strong enough in your faith to actually resist those temptations, okay? But if you're still flirting with the world because your friends continue to want you to flirt with the world, you're not strong enough. You've got to run. You've got to prioritize God. You've got to say no to oh no and continue to prioritize God. But once you start prioritizing God, man, these friends, they're going to say, hey, um, we were talking. Don't, matter. Don't, don't worry about who, but everybody, everybody, hundreds. We're all sitting down and we're all talking that you're just getting a little judgy. In fact, one of our friends, I'm not going to tell you who, but they, they're hurt by you because you're distancing yourself and that's not right. I thought you were supposed to be love. fill in the blank. It's coming. You want to start prioritizing God, y'all, that's what's going to happen. I know of families who have prioritized the work of God, maybe in an example like adoption, God has stirred them up to join God in adoption and all of a sudden the smears come out of the woodwork. Friends, family, you're not ready for that. We were talking, don't matter, don't don't worry about who, but we, we were all talking and everybody thinks it. In fact, somebody else thinks it too, that your kids can't handle that. Your current kids, bring another family, another kid who with that situation, no, 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 that God could never possibly be asking you to do that. Is this hitting home? Y'all, it happens all the time. I'll save you from my own personal examples, but I've dealt with my fair share of smears they are effective. It hurts. It is hard. They try to distract and discredit. And before long, you put down the work. You've stopped working. So how do you persevere through the smear? Do you like that? How do you do it? How do we persevere through a smear? Look at verse 8. This is what Nehemiah did. Then I sent to him, saying, no such things as you say have been done. You are inventing them out of your own mind. They just wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. Oh, now my God, strengthen my hands. Church, here's principle number two for perseverance. Don't don't fear the smear. That's what Nehemiah shows us here. He's just not afraid of this smear. The, The first way that he can combat this thing and not fear this smear is that he just stands in the truth. Right? He doesn't track down who says what, when they say it, how did they say it, tell me more, let's compile this. He didn't do any of that. He just responds and going, fabrication. It's a lie. That's all he said. You're making it up. You're inventing it out of your own head. That never happened. That was never said. Nobody's ever doing that. It just immediately stands in the truth. One statement kept working. But the second thing he does is something we've got to learn too, y'all. We've got to entrust ourselves to the Lord. That's what he does in verse 9. He says, I see what they're up to. Now, God, give me strength. Strengthen my hands. Church, let me say one thing about standing in the truth. If you have anybody in your life that may be, may be being used like Ballot here, let me just tell you, you'll never satisfy people like Ballot with facts or reason or evidence or right or wrong or lies versus truth. Because that's not the goal. Sanballat's intent was not to be right. Sanballat was just wanting Nehemiah to give in to his demands. The only way to resist this is to stand firm in that truth. And the only way to stand firm in truth is to entrust yourself to the Lord. I think it's really easy when we come across Scripture, come across men like Nehemiah, people in the Bible, to think that they're like supernaturally gifted in ways that we could never be. Don't we do that? We read about these feats and we're like, oh, you know, obviously God's good hand was upon him. Never upon me. But y'all, you forget, these are just humans. In fact, Elijah was a man just with flesh like ours, is what James says in chapter five. They're just human. But could you imagine how hard this must have been on Nehemiah? Like really try to put yourself into the story here. How hard would it have been to ignore these rumors and accusations? How much sleep do you or I lose when you know one person said something bad about you on Facebook? You know, and you hadn't seen him in 15 years. Y'all, it's crushing, isn't it? It brings so much anxiety, so much concern. I wonder how hard it must have been for Nehemiah not to worry about his reputation or to defend his, his, himself. That would be my response, right? To throw up some kind of defense. How hard would it have been for Nehemiah to keep on working, not knowing if and when Artaxerxes would be showing up ready to siege him again? Could you imagine that uncertainty, that anxiety of what that looks like? He had to have been struggling, y'all. The only thing Nehemiah knew to do when he struggled, was pray. It's such an example. Y'all pray. Psalm 55 verse 22 has probably been the best scripture for me as a new pastor. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. There's a reality here where we can learn to cast our burdens on the Lord and go, God, I cannot control what anybody thinks about me, says about me, perceives me. The only thing I can do is trust you to protect me to guard me, to give me strength so I can continue to do what I think you've called me to do. Church, this fear of man is what hinders us in God's work. It's fear of man. We're afraid of what people think about us. We're afraid of what people say about us. We're afraid of what people might think about us or might say. We start to create the narrative in our own head of what other people are saying or thinking or feeling. Let me give you some just incredible wisdom from poor Richard's almanac and Benjamin Franklin. He says, since you cannot govern your own tongue within your own teeth, how can I ever hope to govern the tongue of others? You can't. You just can't. You just can't control what people think about you, say about you, or do about you. The only thing you can do is entrust it to the Lord. This fear of man, y'all, has kept people from the work of God for centuries. In John chapter 12, we read in verse 42 that, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, any of, even of the Jewish authorities, began to believe in Christ. But for fear of the Pharisees and fear that they would be kicked out of the synagogue, they would not confess Jesus. It says because they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Church, the glory that comes from man, the fear of man has kept so many from the work of God. So I encourage you, don't fear the smear. There's one more tactic that we need to get to in verse 10, and and they definitely saved the best for last. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 10 says, now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Metabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God, within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. All right, so Nehemiah says no to the meeting and oh no, but he ends up taking this meeting with this guy named Shemaiah. Now, apparently from our text, Shemaiah had the reputation of a prophet. And maybe Nehemiah thought him to be a true prophet, which is why he ends up taking this meeting. And it says that Shemaiah was enclosed in his home, right, confined in his home. And what most people think that means is that when Nehemiah stepped into his home, Shemaiah closed the door and began to deadbolt everything and made this big pretense in this scene that we're in grave danger. We can't talk here. we got to get out. The only place we can be safe to have this conversation, we got to go to the temple. Come, let us meet in the temple together because they're going to kill you. They're going to kill you. Even tonight, they might kill you. But here's principle number three. Nehemiah bypassed that bait. Church, you've got to learn to bypass the bait. Look at verse 11. Nehemiah says, should such a man as I run away? What man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. Y'all, he bypassed the bait. And here's the bait, verse 12. I understood and saw that God had not sent him. It's a false prophet. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Smear, they had hired this guy. Shammai is on the payroll of Sanballat. Had the reputation of a true teacher, of a true prophet of God, and told Nehemiah, come and meet in the temple. You can trust my words. All because he was getting a little bit of change from Sanballat and Tobiah. Nehemiah says, for this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin." so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Now, this is a little confusing for me when I first said this. Right? Nehemiah is saying the intent here is to give me a bad name. But when you read it, it almost feels like the intent was to give them a bad death. Right? Hey, they're coming to kill you. But Nehemiah says, no, 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 this is just a threat. They're not actually interested in killing me. What are they interested in? Giving them a bad name. Well, how? How would this act of going into the sin give Nehemiah a bad name? I mean, going into the temple. I gave you the answer. All right, Numbers chapter 18. In Numbers chapter 18, verse 7, we read from the law of Moses that only priests can step into the innermost parts of the temple. Nehemiah was not a priest. Ezra was, but Nehemiah wasn't a priest. So for Nehemiah to go into the innermost parts of the temple would have been sin for him. And according to 2 Chronicles chapter 26, King Uzziah, who was a king over Israel, went into the innermost parts of the temple, although he wasn't permitted and the Lord struck him with leprosy over, just in the moment. Nehemiah, though, was discerning. He bypassed that bait. He didn't go into that temple. You see, y'all, the higher one's exposure or the greater one's influence, the more one's personal standards and wisdom has to be at play. Have we not seen this in the American church? This is why spiritual leaders must strive to live above reproach in all areas. Because if a spiritual leader can be lured into the trap and take the bait, it won't just discredit the leader. It may even dismantle the faith of all those he's leading. But Nehemiah, y'all, he he just bypassed the bait. How? Here's the secret to bypassing the bait. Develop discernment. That's that's what we have to do. As the people of God, if you want to continue to persevere in the work of God, you've got to develop some discernment. Discernment is the ability to judge matters Rightly according to God's view of things, not simply based on what meets the eye. Discernment is like a sixth sense. The ability to see good and evil, the ability to walk in wisdom, it's it's possessing proper judgment. Now, I did not say possessing proper judgmentalism. Often, what we do as Christians, we go, yeah, I just have the gift of discernment. And then we start running our mouth about other people. That's not discernment. That's critical spirit. That's judgmentalism. So I'm not talking about hyper judgmentalism. I'm talking about the gift of discernment, which is good judgment. And throughout our text today, is it not true that Nehemiah just portrays good judgment? Just good discernment, okay? He says no to Ono because he knows they're going to just do me personal harm there, right? He, he doesn't go to, uh, he doesn't drop his hands from the work uh, and, and fear of the smear because he knows it's just trying to get me to, to drop my hands. He discerns that Shemaiah had sold out. He's just trying to bait him into sin. Church, if you want to persevere in the work of God, we've got to develop some discernment. I don't know if there's a time in church history that we have lacked discernment as much as we do now. Just broadly speaking. I'm I'm concerned about our lack of discernment as as in a Western American church of God. You know why? Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. It's because there are Shemayas everywhere today like everywhere, like scattered all over the earth. Okay, so so let me, let me back up. Before we can just know what it looks like to see a false teacher, please just, just start praying for the gift of discernment. Start praying for proper judgment, for wisdom. James 1 says, if you lack wisdom, he gives it generously to all without finding fault. Y'all, we need wisdom. Pray for it. Psalm 119, 66 says, teach me good judgment. Oh my God, teach me. Show me what it means to walk in judgment. But secondly, for you to have discernment, y'all, you've got to believe the scriptures that false teachers are everywhere. Everywhere. I just, Before I became a pastor, I just kind of saw those scriptures in the New Testament, even in the Old Testament, and just thought, yeah, I believe that. And for whatever reason in my head, I just thought, it's going to be black and white. Like, I'm just going to be able to know that I know that I know that I know that someone is after the church in an ill-intented way. But it's just, it's just not, y'all. It's, it's gray, It's so much harder to discern. We've got to use discernment. Just listen to the scriptures about false teaching. Jeremiah said that they will prophesy delusions from their own minds. Jesus says they'll appear and even perform great signs and wonders in order to deceive. Paul says they're they're wolves in sheep clothes, distorting the truth, trying to draw away the disciples. Peter says they're unstable, distort the scriptures to their own destruction. John says that they are from the world and speak from a viewpoint of the world. Paul says that these teachers, y'all, will have an appearance of godliness, but they actually deny its power. Jesus says you better be discerning and try to know them by their fruits. Y'all, we have got to be discerning. With the popularity and the pervasiveness of social media and soundbites, y'all, the insurmountable volume of blogs, articles, books, whatever it is you want to fill in the blank there, now more than ever, y'all, there are false teachers that are permeating the Christian market in the minds of others. It's scary. You know why it's scary? It's, that's not even the worst part. It's not scary because they're, they're so pervasive. What's scary is that Paul said 2,000 years ago that you and I are going to be tempted to not endure sound teaching but we're going to have itching ears and try to accumulate for ourselves teachers that fit our own passions. What that means is you're going to be prompted to find a teacher that makes you feel good. And it's going to take one Google search to find a hundred of them. All it takes. You want, to find, you want to find someone that teaches a scripture that makes you, think it's, makes you feel the way you want it to feel? It's out there. You can find it. And you get one little sound bite, one little, one little kernel that seems just good enough to, to, this has got to be right, just the way that makes me feel. It just got to be right. You're done. You've bit the bait. You're lured away from the truth, and you're no longer going to be able to persevere in the work of God. Church, believe the Scriptures, Shemias are everywhere. But thirdly, what Nehemiah shows us in discernment is that we've got to just know the Scriptures. Right? We've seen all throughout our text that Nehemiah knew the Scriptures. He knew about Numbers chapter 18. He knew about Uzziah. He bypassed the bait because he was discerning. He's such a good example for us in discernment. There's a verse in the New Testament from Hebrews chapter 5 verse 13 that talks about discernment. It says, For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Here, here's what that looks like. If you have an infant or if you've ever been around an infant, what do they put into their mouths? Everything. I mean, you've got an infant, y'all just can't, you just, you're going to lose that battle. They're going to put everything into their mouths. The spiritual equivalent of a spiritual infant is going to do the same. You're going to just try to put everything into your minds. Accumulate, 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 podcast, 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 book, 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 book. We're just going to run from source to source to source. We're going to consume and consume and consume. And Paul's going to say, you may keep learning and never actually arrive to the knowledge of the truth. And you may go, well, I thought we're supposed to be reading. For sure. Just slow down a little bit. Chew. Because transformation rarely ever happens by mass information. Slow down. We don't have to put everything into our mouths. We don't have to put everything into our minds. A spiritually mature person will discern and practice and will be choosy. We'll be a little bit picky about the diet, the spiritual diet that we undertake. Okay, So be careful not to fall to these Shemais. Let's look at verse 14. Nehemiah, after persevering through these three tactics, says, God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat, according to the things that they had done and also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So just as he has done previously, Nehemiah doesn't lash out to Sanballat. He doesn't fight Shemaiah. He entrusts vengeance to the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 32 says, vengeance is mine. He entrusts it to the Lord. He doesn't need to defend himself. He entrusts it to the Lord. Church, if you want to persevere in the work of God, we're going to have to bypass the bait. We're going to have to develop some discernment. So let's look at verse 15, and I'll conclude with this. So, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. Y'all, that is remarkable. Remarkable. In 52 days, this massive task of building the wall of Jerusalem was completed. And when our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Y'all, I I said this from the beginning of this series, that that this whole task of rebuilding the city, it, it was more than just building a city, right? We've talked about that. It was building a city that would reflect the image of, of our God. The goal here was to put God's glory on display. Their obedience to building the city would actually accomplish putting the glory of God on display. And what happens is that when they persevered in that work and they drove that last spike, all the nations began to see the reality of their God. Church, it's the same in whatever work he's stirring in you. I want you to grasp this. It's not just about just hanging your head and being obedient. It's your obedience is going to lead to his glory being put on display for those around you. Every work that he stirs in you is for his ultimate glory and honor. But it's going to take perseverance. Right? First spike is over. Maybe you're puttering out, maybe you're beginning to lose steam. Just want to encourage you to, to persevere. Say no to oh no. Let your priorities dictate your decisions. Don't fear the smear. Live and love the glory of God far and above the glory of man. And bypass the bait. Develop some discernment and live according to the word of God. Church, Nehemiah is such a good example. But as I close, I just want to remind you, he's really nothing compared to Jesus Christ. I just kept getting struck by this all throughout this text this week. Right? I mean, the the, the first thing here, Jesus, as much as Nehemiah was accomplishing a great work in building the wall, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, you remember what people were taunting him with? come down. I want you to come down from the cross. But he's like, I can't. Like, he, can't dis- he can't just deviate from what God's called him to. He's doing the greatest work that everybody's ever been called to do. You want to talk about a life that was rife with smears? I mean, look at Jesus Christ. From his family, from his friends, from those he had come to save. He was called the prince of demons. He was called crazy and insane, yet he never challenged his critics. He just continued to entrust himself to the truth of God. And we saw this a couple of weeks ago in spiritual warfare, but Jesus bypassed the bait, right? Out in the wilderness, Satan told him, I know what you want. You want the kingdoms of this world. You want redemption. I'll give them to you. And I'll do it in such a way that you never have to go to the cross. You'll never have to experience the pain of crucifixion. All you have to do is worship me. All you got to do is sin, Jesus. But Jesus totally bypassed that bait, He had discernment. He knew what he was about. And as he hung on the cross, it didn't take him 52 days, but as he hung on the cross, he said, it is what? Finished. And everybody, immediately, when he said, it is finished, and he breathed his last, the centurion that had put him up there said, surely this man was the son of God. Right? Immediately, when he was obedient to the task and persevered to the task that God had called him to, immediately people began to see the reality of his God. That's what happens when we're obedient to what he stirred in us. It's going to take Perseverance. So why don't you stand up with me? I'm gonna pray for us and then our team's gonna come back up and lead us through a song of response. Father, your word um, is consistent and it's encouragement of us to run, to run this race that you have called us to, this race of faith with endurance, with perseverance. Lord, we're gonna need your help. We, we need you to strengthen our hands to be able to do that. Help us to not grow weary in doing good. Help us for the joy that's set before us. Endure whatever it is that's required. Lord, I pray for those in this room that have have maybe grown lax, who have maybe begun to put down the the work of of your hands, the things that you have called them to. I pray that you would reinvigorate them this morning with perseverance. I pray that you would give them some time today of of contemplation, even meditation to reflect on what their priorities are. Help us all, Lord, to, to be attentive to the priorities that you want for us. And give us the strength that we're going to need to say no to all these other things. Lord, I pray that you would just fill our minds so much with what you think about us so that the fear of man and the fear of what others think about us isn't just, just pales in comparison. God, I know in my own life this is such an effective work of the enemy to just get us all riled up about what others say and think. I just, I just pray we would live for your glory. God, not for the glory of man. And Lord, keep us from sin. Your word says in Hebrews that it's sin that clings so closely, that so easily entangles us and keeps us from running with endurance this race that is before us. Father, help us to bypass the bait of sin. Help us to lead lives that are holy and righteous before you. And we recognize that we need the grace of Jesus Christ to get this done. Give us the grace to strengthen our hands to accomplish the work that you've called us to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.